Good evening, I'm John Yang. Delegates at the United Nations have agreed on a historic international treaty to protect biodiversity in the ocean. It's been years in the making and only made it over the finish line after a marathon 36-hour negotiating session that ended late last night. Even for people who don't live near it, the ocean is central to life on Earth. It covers more than 70% of the Earth's surface, is home to tens of thousands of fish species, provides oxygen for the planet, and provides the livelihood for billions of people. But only 1.2% of the ocean has any legal protection, leaving the high seas lawless and ripe for exploitation. Overfishing threatens biodiversity. Another threat, the ocean's rising temperatures caused in part by climate change. And the man-made scourge of plastic pollution poses an ever-growing problem. Late last month, as the United Nations kicked off a fifth round of negotiations to establish a treaty to protect more of the ocean, the cause gained some star power. We depend on the ocean. You know, even dogs don't poop in their kennel because they know that the kennel provides security and a home for them. We're pooping in our kennel. We're supposed to be so smart. We're destroying things we don't even understand. The outcome is critical to reaching another UN goal, protecting 30% of the ocean by 2030. Over the past two weeks, delegates from 193 countries met to try to hammer out the final details of a treaty. Among the goals, creating a legal framework to establish a network of high sea marine protected areas, creating rules for exploitation of resources, and confronting the issue of overfishing. The ship has reached the shore. Late last night, after 36 straight hours of negotiation at the United Nations, the president of the conference announced the historic agreement. Earlier, I spoke with Liz Cairn, who was at the UN for those negotiations, as head of the Pew Charitable Trust efforts to protect ocean life on the high seas. I asked her about the final push to get the deal done. It was truly incredible. Um, the negotiations started uh, even before the official ten, uh, starting time of 10 a.m. on Friday morning uh, and went all through the night into the next morning um, and didn't conclude till almost 10 p.m. the next day. So, um, you know, it's not unusual for negotiations of this kind um, to go into a little bit of overtime, but this was really uh, a, an incredible situation where because of the complexity of the package of issues being dealt with, uh, negotiators really needed that extra time um, to push it over the finish line. Given the complexity, given how long this has been in the works uh, and how long these final round of talks were, how much of the significance of this agreement is in the details of the provisions and how much is it the fact that it exists, that countries were able to come to an agreement at all? Given where... Uh, the situation in the world today, I think that it's historic that we are able to have a multilateral uh, agreement of this scale uh, that covers two, the high seas, which covers two thirds of the world's ocean. Um, it is also an incredibly detailed agreement. It sets out a legal framework for establishing high seas marine protected areas and other area-based management tools. It sets out standards and a consistent process to evaluate environmental impacts of um, new activities in the high seas. 
uh, and it also sets out uh, financial uh, benefit sharing for um, derived from marine genetic resources. Um, and, and a very important element is it ensures capacity building uh, and the transfer of marine technology to ensure the equitable and effective implementation of this agreement. What were the final hurdles or some of the toughest hurdles to clear before uh, the agreement was reached? I think two key issues. One is around that financial benefit sharing of the marine genetic resources. It really is uh, an unprecedented um, provision um, and basically ensures that benefits that are derived from the global commons um, are shared uh, even by uh, shared globally. So what that means is that um, developing countries can also benefit um, from them and that those benefits will be in turn used for uh, conservation and sustainable use of the marine environment. So it sounds like it's some of the same splits that we've seen in climate change talks between uh, the rich industrial nations and the poor nations who feel that they're, they're being asked to pay for what the rich industrial nations have created, but now they're, they're looking to get the benefits. Is that right? Um, that's true. Yes. I think financial benefit sharing um, is an important issue. Um, it really is an, an issue of equity and allowing for the effective implementation of the agreement. Um, the agreement will, as I mentioned, set out uh, a process for the establishment of large scale marine protected areas in the high seas. Um, and that is really important to protect uh, areas that are going to be key for biodiversity, especially in a changing climate. Now, this still has to be ratified by many of the, the signatory nations. Is that right? It does. Actually, what um, occurred last night is that the president of the conference um, uh, finalized the text uh, that will then be going for technical review uh, and translation into all six UN official languages, uh, at which time countries will come back uh, and officially adopt it uh, in the near future. And what's next? I mean, I know that the UN would like to have rules governing 30% of the oceans by 2030. Does this help that? Absolutely. Um, the high seas make up two-thirds of the world's oceans. Um, it's over half of the surface area um, of the planet, um, and they play a very uh, important role in ensuring uh, the implementation of the 30 by 30 target. Actually, without this treaty, it would be very hard to meet that target. Liz Karen of the Pew Charitable Trust, thank you very much. Thank you, John.